56, and we'll read that text in just a moment. But before we begin, uh, we think about where we have been in this chapter and studying through the latter part of chapter 8 and uh, going all the way back, and we won't obviously read through this entire section, uh, but the, the question that we really are trying to answer in this section goes all the way back to verse 25, which happened earlier on with the account of the disciples and Jesus crossing over the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The storm comes up, the people, the disciples are afraid, they're fearful that they are going to die. And Jesus asks this question, he says, where is your faith? And so we have been trying to answer this question, where is your faith? Where does your faith really reside? What is it that you are putting your faith in? We've been sort of up front with the statement that we are trying to make clear throughout this section, and that being this, you can trust Jesus as Lord over your life, and he's demonstrated himself to be Lord over um, creation, Lord over nature. He demonstrated himself to be the Lord over the spiritual realm, and last week we met this man who we titled Mr. Legion. He was uh, demon-possessed by thousands of demons, and yet Jesus delivers him from that demonic activity. And today, we're going to look at this last section and try to understand and see that not only is Jesus Lord over the natural realm and the spiritual realm, but he's also the Lord over the physical realm, and we'll see that demonstrated um, today. So the question for us is still valid. Where is your faith? I wrote down a few thoughts in response to a devotional that I was reading through this week, thinking about my own faith. Where does my faith really rest? Where does my faith really reside? I wish I didn't doubt the presence of God in my life at times, but there are times that I feel alone. I feel as if God is not present. We talked about having right theology, right? Thinking about God correctly when the reality is I can't forget God's omnipresence in my life. It means he is always present. Think about at night. Maybe you go into your kid's room the way we do, and we pray with our children, and we, we say goodnight to them, and then I make the walk down the hallway into my bedroom, and I lay my head on the pillow, and most nights, in about 4.2 seconds, I am asleep. And in the midst of my sleep, I don't purposefully think about, consciously think about my children. I may dream about them at times, but I don't think about them. I'm not really watching over them at that moment. And yet, Psalm 121 tells us, Behold, he who keeps Israel shall never sleep nor slumber. The Lord is your keeper. God is always present in my life. And if he is Lord of lords and King of kings, I have to rest And understand that, in fact, God never sleeps. He is the one who is omnipresent in my life. But I also wish there were not times when I wasn't worried, when I wasn't restless. But there are times of anxiety. There is the reality to life that I don't know what tomorrow will bring. I forget God's omniscience. I forget the fact that he knows tomorrow in my life better than I know yesterday. While I I don't script everything that I preach, I script some of it, but three and five minutes from now, I don't know what I will say. But God knows every word before I speak it. 
That's the God of the Scripture. That's the God that Jesus is showing himself to be. I wish I wasn't jealous, envious, petty, and critical at times, but I catch myself comparing myself to other believers, other people believing I deserve something better. I forget that God has provided for me what he willed for my life, and I forget that he is also omnipotent. He is all-powerful, that God is able to give and to provide whatever it is he wants me to have and what he wants me to provide. I wish I didn't struggle as we sang this song a little while ago with God's goodness, his love, and his sovereignty, but there are times I wish I could rewrite the script of my life. Yesterday, this past weekend, I was away at the counseling um, seminar up in, up in Raleigh, and I was sitting there yesterday afternoon at the breaks kind of working on some stuff for the business meeting today and finalizing some stuff And I noticed when I got to the hotel Friday night, my throat was really sore. And I don't get sick very often, but I I really wasn't feeling very well. And then all day yesterday, I just wasn't feeling well. My my throat was getting even more sore and not feeling well, driving home and just feeling pretty pretty tired and and trying to, like, honestly saying to myself, Lord, of all the weekends to not feel well, you know that tomorrow I'm going to stand before our church family and throw out a building program. And what we need to do and convince, I am convinced it's time for us to move on this building. And God, why am I sick now? Then my wife texts me. I read it, but I didn't text back. I was driving. I'm pretty convinced Jonathan just broke his arm. So get home, and really, God, now? Really? So I look at the arm, it's swollen. So trip to, you know, to get x-rays, and yep, sure enough, two, both bones broken in his right arm. Driving back, feeling, God, why now? You ever, you ever feel like that? Wish I didn't struggle questioning God's goodness at times. I, I wish I didn't question God's sovereignty at times. From a doctrinal standpoint, I am very familiar with what the Bible says about God. Friday night, I'm in a, in a, in a, in a couple sessions on basic theology, and it's like, not to be arrogant, I could have taught that without any preparation. I have all the information. I need to believe in God's power and presence and promises. What I, what I lack at times is not the head knowledge. What, what I lack sometimes is the faith to believe it. As a pastor, I'm called to help people who are wrestling with their doubts and discouragements and confusion and lack of faith, and yet there are times I'm afraid, I'm discouraged, I'm doubting, I'm confused. No matter how theologically trained we are, no matter what we may know, how many times have we read through the Scripture, we may have it memorized and know it, but how often do you forget who God is? And how often does your faith begin to waffle a little bit? Well, my heart was stirred. When you, when you read back now, beginning back in verse 40, and we think about, is Jesus really Lord of lords and King of kings? Is there really an all-powerful, all-knowing, omniscient, omnipresent uh, God? Is there really this one? And we see it revealed to us in Christ. And notice verse 40, it says this, and it came to pass that when Jesus was returned, the people gladly received him. Remember, he just got kicked out of the last place. They ran him out. They didn't want him. They, they, ran him. they ran him off. 
But these people gladly received him. Why? For they were, they were all waiting for him. There's this great populace. They are desiring to have more exposure to Jesus. They have heard positive things about his ministry, and his word has spread about what he has done. I'm sure they were following him on Twitter and Instagram and, and following what Jesus was doing. Well, of course not. It was spreading through word of mouth. There was no television. There was no radio. There was no way to get this information out. And notice in verse 41, you got all these people coming in and, and, and coming to see him. Look at verse 41. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and it was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him that he would come to his house, for he had only one daughter, about 12 years old, the age of my daughter almost, who was 11. And she lay dying. But as he went, the people thronged him. Notice this account, right? So all these people are there. This guy Jairus comes to him. He was a ruler of the synagogue. He was somebody of importance. He was somebody who likely arranged the synagogue services. He was a leader in the community. He would have been known. He was an overseer that provided uh, order and appointed those in the services of how they would serve in the synagogue, and this man, regardless of his position, he was an official, and he represented the Jewish establishment, and notice he comes by faith, and he falls in desperation before Jesus, and the reason being, I have a 12-year-old daughter who is at home, laying in bed, and she's dying. Notice the, the age in which she was 12, this would have been about the time where she would have been close in their culture to getting married. But now her life is in this fragile state. Put yourself in Jairus' shoes for a moment, especially if you're a dad and you understand the, the love for your children and never even things like a broken arm, not wanting to see your children suffer, not wanting to see them go through difficulties. The, the, the urgency of this man as he comes, and notice he falls down before Christ, recognizing that this man, Jesus, that there was hope in him, and he understood that Jesus was the one who could heal him. But notice Luke adds for us at the end of verse 42, but the people were pressing against him. There's people all over the place. Imagine, imagine Jairus for a moment, Jairus for a moment. If, if you knew that your daughter is lying on her deathbed, time is of, a, of, is of an essence. You know that if Jesus can get there in their thinking, if Jesus can get there before she's dead, there's hope. But if she dies, there is no hope. Now, we know, we've read Luke's account, that Jesus has risen others from the dead, but this dad apparently in the family did not understand that Jesus had actually had already raised people from the dead. He'd already done that. But it also may very well be still a lack of faith. That Well, he might have been able to do that before, but could he do it again? Either way, there's this sense of urgency. And so you look at these people. They're pressing against them. They're slowing Jesus down. And in your sense of urgency, right, you've got some place to be. You've got some place to get. And these people are in your way. I'm sure there was a sense of urgency and frustration as Jairus is trying to get Jesus through the crowds and trying to get him to the place that he will come to his daughter. And then we see in verse 43, and a woman having an issue of blood for 12 years, the same amount of time this girl has been alive, this woman has experienced this issue of blood for 12 years, which had spent all of her living upon physicians, 
but could not be healed of any of them. Now, this woman's desperate too. Here is a woman who is struggling with this issue of bleeding. She's had this problem since she, as long as this other girl, Jairus' daughter, has been alive. Because of the bleeding, she would have been considered unclean. She would have been an embarrassment and and, and, and culture because of her ceremonial uncleanliness. She would have been shut out from fellowship. She would have been shut out from religious life. She was an outcast. Bleeding was possibly the result of some sort of uterine hemorrhage. We don't know, but either way, this issue of blood made her unclean. But notice the severity of this woman's plight. Notice Notice that this is a very severe situation. This is a very desperate scenario. Notice the description of it. Number one, the length of time, 12 years. She's been experiencing this for over a decade. This has been a problem that has lingered in her life for 12 long years, living in isolation, living with this issue of blood for this long period of time. But notice, secondly, that no one could help her, even physicians, She'd been to all of them. (laughs) She had tried to find someone who could heal her. She had tried to find someone in the medical profession that was able to find a cure for this problem. But notice, not only was there a length of time, not only were the physicians not able to help, but it also says in verse 43 that she spent all of her money. She's broke. She has no money. She has apparently no husband. She is socially outcast. This woman is in desperation. Matthew's account, by the way, of this same event says this, and behold, a woman which was diseased with an issue of blood 12 years came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. For she said within herself, if I may touch his garment, I shall be whole. Notice verse 44 in Luke's account. She came behind him and touched the border, the hem of his garment, and immediately her issue of blood was cured. Immediately. Her bleeding stops at the moment she touches the garment. What no one else could do, what the physicians were not able to accomplish, Jesus accomplishes by the woman simply touching the hem of her garment, even though Jesus didn't at this point know about it. Years of agony, years of embarrassment, years of desperation are reversed by a single touch of Jesus' garment. Now, notice verse 45. Don't don't lose sight of, of Jairus at this point. Don't forget him. His daughter's dying. And notice what happens in verse 45. And Jesus says, who touched me? When all denied, Peter and them that were with him said, Master, the multitude thronged thee and pressed thee, and you're going to ask who touched you? Let me put this in my language. Really, Jesus? You see all these people, they're pushing against you and pressing against you, and you're going to stop and ask who touched you? Really? What's wrong with you? But notice these words, the word throng, it means to surround, to hem him in, to encircle. It literally meant to hold somebody prisoner. He's surrounded. He's almost in a prison of people. He is being locked in. The word press, it means it meant to, to, to press grapes. It means to crowd upon. So this is like, for those of us that are introverts, this is like the, the, the most 
scary place on earth trying to make your way through a crowd of people. And they're touching you and pushing you and you're being swayed back and forth. And Jesus is trying to make his way through it. And Jesus knew that someone had touched him because Luke tells, because it says that power or strength had gone from him. But notice verse uh, 46, Jesus says, somebody has touched me for I perceive that virtue or power has gone out of me. He didn't see her. He didn't feel it. All she did was touch the hem of his garment, but he understood that power had left him. In verse 47, and the woman saw that she was not hid. She came trembling and falling down before him. She declared unto him before all the people for what cause she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. Notice this woman. So is this a real question? Verse 45, Jesus, he says, who touched me? Why would he ask that? He's God. He would have known who it was, but this seems to be a rhetorical question to bring this woman to the forefront. And this lady, while she had gone unnoticed, she comes now before Christ with trembling and fear, and she falls down before him. Well, why was she afraid? What was she afraid of? Well, for one, it's possibly it's possible that she feared making Jesus ceremonially unclean by touching him, perhaps Jesus would be angry with her. Perhaps he would scold her, if you will, for touching him. Did she fear rebuke from Jesus? I don't know. But the trembling, because she experienced God's healing, she produced in her, I believe, reverential fear and awe. Right? She comes before him recognizing that God had healed her. Jesus had healed her. She comes before him with fear in the, in the awesome sense. She's standing in absolute awe before God. And she declares, she tells everybody, look, the reason I touched him was because of my problem. And he healed me immediately. My problem is cured. Now, verse 48, Jesus speaks again and it says, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith has made you whole. Go in peace. Notice the tenderness that Jesus speaks to this woman with daughter. Obviously, she's not his physical daughter. It was an affectionate term that was used to comfort the woman. It was used to comfort this person. It was used to show compassion on her. He uses this word daughter, but he also tells her, your faith has made you whole. It has healed you. Literally, it has saved you. Your faith has brought physical healing. Think about this. Other people in the crowd had touched Jesus. There had likely been in the midst of this crowd of people, of people pushing against Christ and touching him, perhaps even accidentally or maybe reaching out on purpose to touch him. We don't have record of anybody else being healed in the midst of this crowd. And it would be hard for us to argue that there was not people that were there to see Jesus that were also experiencing challenges and difficulties. And they were experiencing physical problems. They had touched Jesus, but Luke doesn't tell us they're healed. Why her? Because of her faith. Because she understood that Jesus is the one who is all-powerful. She understood that all I have to do is touch the hem of his garment, and I don't even have to speak to him. He doesn't even have to see me. He doesn't even have to make a pronouncement that I am healed. All I have to do is touch him and touch his garment, and I will be healed. And Jesus says, it is because of your faith that God has healed you physically. 
But there is a deeper aspect to this. He says that not only are you healed physically, but you have been healed spiritually. You have been made whole. The idea is that your faith has also brought spiritual healing. You have been born again in our vernacular. You have been, you have been saved from your sin. Her faith also brought spiritual healing. And Jesus says to this woman, now you can go in peace. Your physical challenges are over. Your spiritual life has been reborn. And now you can go in your faith and live your life. You can go in peace. Now imagine this woman. Imagine her emotion at this point. Imagine the sense of euphoria. I'm healed. No more doctors. No more spending money that I don't have. No more isolation. No more being written off by, by my community as ceremonial unclean. I can now have reason to rejoice and I can be thankful to the power of God and I can be thankful for what God has done in my life because of my faith, this simple faith. All I have to do is touch the hem of his garment and he will heal me. Now notice the contrast. She is healed and made whole but notice in verse 49, it says this, While he yet spake, there cometh one from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the master anymore. There's nothing more that, that can be done. Notice the contrast. You've got the woman with the issue of blood who has been delivered. And now you have Jairus, this, this father, who came to Jesus out of desperation, who came to him by faith, who came to him believing and understanding that he could heal this girl. So imagine his response. What do you think he thought of the woman at this point? Jesus, we're in a hurry. My daughter's life is hanging in the balance, and you're going to stop and talk to this lady. And now somebody comes and it says, it's too late. It's too late. Your daughter is, is dead. Your daughter is, is gone. The hope of, of, of healing for this man is now, is now gone. He believes that his daughter is no longer able to be healed. Notice in verse 50, it says this, by the way, again, death was seen as insurmountable, even for those like Jesus. One writer said this, if the daughter were still alive, Jesus might be able to help, but no one can bring back the dead to life. No use bothering Jesus anymore. But notice in verse 50, Jesus says, and he says, fear not, believe only, and she shall be made whole. And when he had come to the house, he suffered no man to go in except Peter and James and John and the father and the mother of the maiden. In other words, he gets to the house and he says, only a few of you guys can come in. Everybody else stay outside. You wait here. I'm going to go in to this girl. And notice verse 52, and all wept and bewailed her. Again, their, their sense of mourning and, and how they would mourn, there would have been wailing and crying and beating themselves and, and screaming and 
crying out in absolute agony for the loss of this daughter. So for some to argue she wasn't really dead, the family believed wholeheartedly that she was dead, that she was gone, that her, her spirit from, from within her has been taken. She's dead. The family firmly believes that. And notice, as Jesus comes in, he tells them, weep not, she is not dead, but she's asleep. And they laughed him to scorn because they knew that she was dead. So their laughter, notice this change in emotion in these people. They are laughing, they are, or they are mourning rather, they are mourning the death of this young girl. And now their laughter, their mourning rather, is changed to laughter as Jesus says this, she's not dead. She's asleep, and notice verse 53, they laugh at him, verse 54, and he put them all out, put them outside, and he says, he takes the daughter, the young girl, by her hand, and he says, maid, arise, get up, and her spirit came again, and she arose straightway, and he commanded to give her meat. He commands her them to, to feed her, to give her food, to give her sustenance. And notice in verse 56, and her parents were astonished. And he charged them and he said that they should tell no man what was done. This great reversal that she is dead. Jesus comes in. He touches her by the hand and says, arise, get up. She gets up and he commands them to feed her, to give her food. And then in verse 26 of chapter 9 of Matthew's account, all the report of this went out into the land. Notice what he tells them. He says that you shouldn't tell anybody. Keep this to yourself. Don't don't go out and spread this abroad, partially probably because this little girl would now sort of become a spectacle. It may also have been that Jesus at this point didn't want uh, word about this miracle to get out because he wanted to reveal himself in his own way at a future time. We don't know the exact reason, but we do know that they were told, don't tell anybody. But Matthew says, and the report of this went all over the land. It went all over the place. People talked about it and told one another what Jesus had done. Now consider for a moment the sociology of these healings. You have a synagogue leader, a child, and a woman who was considered to be an outcast. And notice, Jesus shows no partiality to them. He reaches out to the woman who has the issue of blood, even though she is ceremonially unclean, even though she has experienced this problem for this period of time. He reaches out, he touches her, he heals her. Jairus being a synagogue leader, being somebody of influence in the community, his daughter dies, he also heals her, showing that this gospel message, this opportunity to know Christ, was across socioeconomic boundaries. This wasn't limited to a particular group of people. It was available to all. It was available to all who believe. It was available to those who put their faith in Christ. So as we look at this passage, we have to ask ourselves the question, as we always do, what does this mean for us? What does that mean? Well, go back to what I said in the beginning. Where is your faith? We all have faith. We all have put our faith in something. We've all put our faith in someone. 
Maybe we have put our faith in our own ability. Maybe we've put our faith in our own giftedness. Maybe we've put our faith in our money, our possessions, our position, whatever. The question isn't whether or not we are going to express faith. The question for us is, what am I going to put my faith in? And that's where our theology comes in. Because while we at times may experience hardship and difficulty, like the woman who went through 12 years of this issue of blood, we know that she experienced hardship. She experienced heartache. She experienced the difficulties of life. This man, seeing his dying daughter take, while he wasn't there, present when she died, but to hear that his daughter had taken her last breath, that she was dead, that she was gone. She, he was experiencing the pressures and difficulties and challenges of life. And we know this, that our faith in Christ and our faith in God will not always bring perfect circumstances. We know that. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul tells us that God is the God of all comfort. And he says that God comforts us so that we can, in turn, comfort other people. Notice, Paul doesn't say that God gives us comfort to make us comfortable. He gives us comfort so that we can comfort others. And notice the faith of these people as they put their faith in Christ as they believed him and their faith was resting in Christ, which begs the question for all of us, why would we put our faith in anything or anyone other than Christ? Again, it doesn't guarantee that circumstances of life will be perfect all the time, but it does mean that there is a God in heaven who really is all-powerful. There really is a God in heaven who is omniscient. He knows all things about you. He knows all things about your trials and circumstances and difficulties. He knows you personally. We know he's all-powerful. We know he's all-knowing. But maybe the one we struggle with the most is that he's always present. And there may be times that we feel as if God is distant. We may feel at times when we're going through challenges of life and we're going through these difficulties that maybe we're going through them alone. Maybe we're experiencing these things apart from God's presence, but the reality is that God is always present. In fact, you think about this. Jesus um, was called Emmanuel, right? God with us. And when you think about the word Emmanuel, God with us, you could say it this way. Emmanuel means God is with Jay. And you could take that sentence and you could say Emmanuel means God is with, and you could fill in your name and understand that God is always present in your life. Now, Jesus was the direct revelation of that and showing to these people in a first-hand way that they could experience God and see God and touch him and experience these things. And we know that the same God, this same Jesus, is our own Lord and Savior as well. So where is your faith? Is your faith in Christ? Is your faith in Christ for salvation, that there is salvation in none other except in Christ alone, that it is only by faith in Jesus Christ that someone can have a personal relationship with God. It's only through faith in Christ. But what about as a believer? 
Does your faith day to day truly rest in Christ? May it be that we know that. We can think that. But do we live that? Do we live a life on a daily basis in which we are expressing our faith in Christ and living in obedience to him? Jesus Christ is Lord over all. Is he, is he alone the object of your faith? Let's pray.